Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press. Tech Policy Press is a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. You can find us at techpolicy.press and on Twitter at techpolicypress. Our goal is to engage with the people and ideas shaping society's relationship to tech, and we're going to do that today. We're going to hear from Dr. Caitlin Elsesser, clinical social worker and researcher at the University of Connecticut, who studies the connections between youth violence and social media. In partnership with Hartford Violence Prevention Agencies, she recently did a study that considered the connections between social media features and youth violence with the goal of identifying mechanisms for intervention. We've also got an interview with Jeff Kosseff, a professor of cybersecurity law in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. His latest book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, A History of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, was published in 2019 by Cornell University Press. I'm excited to hear Jeff respond to some of the dominant arguments around Section 230, which celebrates its 25th anniversary on Monday, February 8th. For this segment, I presented Jeff arguments from two groups of people. First, 10- and 11-year-olds at a recent debate competition my son participated in that included a proposition around Section 230, and statements by three United States senators. But to start things off, I check in with Tech Policy Press co-founder Brian Jones and our fellow Romy Geller, who is a research assistant for the propaganda program at the Center for Media Engagement and the Moody College of Communication at UT Austin. So Brian, uh, you and I first started Protego Press two, more than two years ago now. Um, and more recently, of course, we've changed the name and, and relaunched as Tech Policy Press. What were you hoping we'd, we'd accomplish when we set out? You know, there's a ton of places where technology is being covered, whether that's on a tech crunch, whether that's on New York Times, whether that is on CNBC. But most of the time, it's about how tech companies are performing, their funding rounds, their revenue numbers, their product releases. It's very seldom that the conversation turns to how their products intersect with democracy, with communities with society. And at least for me, what I hope that we would accomplish is to, to create a platform where those conversations could occur on a more regular basis. And whether that is on disinformation or whether that is on ethics of technology, whether that is on anything ranging from you know blockchain to AI on self-driving cars. Awesome. And you know, part of your perspective on that is um to do with your own career. I mean, you, you kind of got involved in ad tech early on and, uh, and you know, helped to, to create some, some tools that you later grew concerned about. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So, you know, I was one of the, the pioneers in uh, cookie-less targeting technology and, and cross-device targeting. Um, have a couple of patents in that area. And, you know, it's one of these things when we did it, the intention was how do you help companies that are struggling with mobile monetization, but yet mobile usage is skyrocketing. We started out with the idea, how do we help those companies stay in business? But what we've seen from the ad tech platforms, what we've seen from the platforms that are ad-based revenue models 
is that there are a lot of places where decisions are made to maximize shareholder revenue as opposed to maximizing the revenue of society. We also have uh, Romy Geller with us today, who is joining us uh, also from Austin, Texas, uh, where she's about to finish up her undergraduate degree um, and is doing some excellent research there and uh, helping out uh, Tech Policy Press uh, as part of an internship. Romy, what are you studying and what are you hoping to get up to when when you leave school? Yeah, so I'm a senior journalism major at the University of Texas at Austin, like you said, and I also do research at the Center of Media Engagement, where we look at disinformation and kind of everything we've been talking about today. Um, I'm also a pre-law student, and I'm interested in tech policy and kind of helping be the generation that kind of builds those safeguards that tries to control all the disinformation that's kind of enveloping our media system today. Remy's going to be helping out with this podcast and helping to, uh, you know, give it some some order and structure and, and produce generally. So thank you very much. Um, yeah, so course. I wanted to ask you both, um, you know, as we kind of get into this, one of the things we hope to do each week is just at the top of the program, talk a little bit about um, some of the kind of key news events that have occurred over the course of the last week. Uh, and Remy, I thought I might start with you since we're going to spend a little time on this show talking about Section 230. Even after we recorded one of the segments for today, there was there was news about Section 230. What's going on? Yeah, so the Safe Tech Act was introduced today, and that stands for the Safeguarding Against Fraud, Exploitation, Threats, Extremism, and Consumer Harms Act. And it was introduced by Senator Warner, Hirano, and Colberture. And it Basically, the early reactions is that people are saying that con- this might be a hint that Congress is paying attention to the, all the criticism Section 230 has been um, kind of experiencing in the last few years. Uh, basically, an overview of the bill, the bill would get rid of immunity altogether when it comes to injunctions. It explicitly says that immunity granted by Section 230 doesn't apply to lawsuits alleging stalking, harassment, or intimidation, and and establishes the immunity doesn't extend to advertisements. So it's kind of drawing some lines around what those liability protections are and and really opening up social media platforms to some liability for some of the worst types of uh, things that can happen to people as a result of their use. Yeah, exactly. Um, Brian, wh- what are you looking at? Uh, I know you, you've seen a couple of headlines floating around as well. Yeah, there, there's two news articles that came out this week that I think are really interesting. The first is that the Virginia Senate approved the Virginia Consumer Data Protection Act. And this is one of the first several U.S.-based protection as- acts that have been passed. Um, it's very similar to the Washington Privacy Act. It also is similar to the the California uh, Consumer Privacy Act. The reason that it's interesting to me is that we're starting to get to the point where there's a patchwork quilt of states that have their own separate privacy laws. And from a tech company perspective, that starts to get really difficult on how do you manage this? Is it based on the state of residence? Is it based on who's in the state? If I'm in Texas and I go to Virginia, am I governed by Virginia's laws or Texas laws? What does that do to somebody who has a mobile device and is on a platform? As there are more states that have this, it becomes more and more complicated. Will we see for the first time tech companies asking the federal government to intercede 
and to create a federal privacy law so that they only have one set of laws that they need to be worried about as opposed to 50 individual state laws. So that's, that's one story that I think is really interesting. What else is going on? The other one, you know, I think at this point, everybody has probably heard about the, the GameStop Robinhood situation from last week where um, a bunch of traders on Reddit um, found out that there was a potential overshort of the GameStop sh- stock and started to buy shares and buy calls. And there was a liquidity crunch and Robinhood halted trading. And the reason that I bring that up isn't necessarily to talk about Robinhood and, and what they did or did not do right, but it's to talk about a law that or a proposed law out of Las Vegas, um, Nevada, that is, is really interesting. What it is, is that the government governor there wants to incentivize tech companies to move to a state. The way that he's doing that goes way beyond the normal tax breaks that you would expect and instead actually allows companies to form their own local government. The way that the law is proposed is that their local ordinances, the the tech company's local ordinances, would supersede the rules of the county in which their company was based. And that's a very interesting and complicated proposal that, to me, feels a lot closer to what the coal companies did with the coal towns and the coal camps and belonging to not only the place that you live, but also the laws of wherever you work for versus anything that we've seen. And so I think it's early days. I have no idea how it's going to play out, but it's interesting that this concept of decentralized tech platforms that lead to decentralized governments is now finding its way actually into real governments. And I don't think this is going to be the last time that we hear or see proposed laws to address this type of, uh, of intersection between technology and governments. Well, that's crazy. And uh, we'll, we'll tweet links to both those articles uh, from techpolicy.press uh, Twitter account so that folks can follow right along and find that. Um, the story that I uh, find most interesting is one that literally just published an hour ago from BuzzFeed, which is that uh, Donald Trump's business sought a stake in parlor uh, the final months of his presidency. So Ryan Mack and Rosie Gray uh, broke this story. Essentially, Parler wanted Donald Trump to to join the platform and make it his primary network. And basically, the Trump organization said, okay, that sounds great, um, but we want an ownership stake in Parler uh, in return. And we want to, you know, essentially make it his sort of, you know, primary social network or, or maybe uh, have some sort of exclusivity in terms of his participation. Um, so it raises a lot of questions about exactly who was negotiating this. Uh, was Trump negotiating it as president? Was he involved in it? Uh, apparently, Brad Parscale had raised the idea to Trump of the ownership stake during a meeting last year at the White House. So, you know, the kind of thing that if Donald Trump were still in office, this would, you know, kind of rise to the level of a high crime, you know, trading on his office uh, to potentially secure himself an ownership stake in a, in a social media platform that seemed to be all about Donald Trump. So kind of a crazy story. The opportunity to have a direct line of communication is so valuable. And we're seeing, seeing that play out with you know, the Facebook oversight board and others who are having to, to make decisions on whether or not this is you know, somebody being banned 
is the right thing for the company because these are these are big decisions when you have 90 million followers that's a huge revenue opportunity so you can see you know see the the, the stress that tech companies are under when it comes to banning individuals and the opportunity that it is for people with big followings to find their own platform or to own own part of the platform that they're influencing. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you both for uh, talking with me this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Earlier this year, researchers from Boston University, Columbia, and the University of Connecticut published findings of a new qualitative study in a journal called Children and Youth Services Review. The study is based on surveys and focus groups conducted in collaboration with the Coalition for Youth, a Hartford, Connecticut youth development agency. The study advances prior work on the phenomenon of internet banking, a term coined in September 2013 in a paper written with one of the study's co-authors. Columbia University School of Social Work's Desmond Patton. Distinct from the more commonly referenced phenomenon of cyberbullying, internet banging describes the threat of offline violence resulting from conflict on social media, with more than one party engaged in aggressive and threatening communication. I got a chance to talk to one of the lead authors on the paper, Dr. Caitlin Elsesser. So, uh, Caitlin, tell me a little bit about your research. Yeah, so I have a background as a clinical social worker and teacher in Chicago. And through that experience, I became interested in young kids who are dealing with trauma in urban spaces, disinvested neighborhoods. And I became interested in social media and the role of violence through partially um, my collaboration with Dr. Desmond Patton, but also I collaborate with a um, great organization called Compass Youth Collaborative in Hartford. They do violence prevention work. And in conversations with them, they shared with me, uh, the violence prevention workers, that out of all the, their, their workers that are you know, on the streets involved and, and kind of monitoring most of the violence that's happening in Hartford, uh, which is a really disinvested city, And they shared with me that almost all of the incidents they see on the streets that turn violent have started on social media. And when I heard that, I I was shocked. And, um, And so that really was the motivation for this project to look into how social media as a context leads to offline violence for youth. So tell me a little bit about the study itself. You you did essentially focus groups and interviews with dozens of, of Hartford youth. Yeah, so we talked to 41 Hartford youth, uh, 12 to 18, and we really consider them experts in what the experience is like in terms of of conflict on social media and how it uh, influences their behavior. And we really found they are acute observers of how social media changes their experience online. And they had, they had so much to say when we sat down with them, we weren't sure if this was a topic that would be interested because Desmond, Dr. Desmond Patton had done this work in New York city, Chicago, but a small city like Hartford, you know, which of course there's countless across um, the country. We weren't sure if this was showing up in the same way. And the young people had so much to say 
Um, and so, yeah, we, we spoke with um, young people that are um, enrolled in violence prevention programs. So they are considered at risk or have some kind of involvement in violence. Um, and they shared with us their experiences of conflict that on social media that has led to offline violence. And so what did you learn about the, the way that using social media platforms not only served as a platform for the types of communication uh, that, that led to violence, but, but ultimately how it maybe changed the type of conflict that the students were having? Yeah, that was that's such a great question. And that really gets to the heart of what they were sharing with us. Um, what we really heard from the young people is that um, social, the experience on social media was not just taking experiences that happen on their neighborhood block or in school, and it's in a different place. It actually was changing how they fought online or their, their experience of conflict. And they were very aware of this. Um, and so things like um, how public uh, the experience of conflict was with mo most of the conflicts that we heard about took place on Facebook. Um, and so the public nature of conflicts on social media, particularly Facebook with particip audience participation or witnessing some kind of conflict and then comments or um, uh, likes, or it really tended to heat up the experience of conflict. Um, and, um, and heat it up very quickly. So it would, you know, a conflict would happen and then immediately there was this, this witnessing of the conflict and joining in of their Facebook friends and even outsiders to kind of egg it on. And then, you know, your reputation is very important as an adolescent. If you have had your peers watch someone threaten you or disrespect you, that's like your worst nightmare as a teenager. And so they were aware of that. And, and to save face, they described that it was, you know, at that point, it was really critical to, to defend their reputation. And that's what would often lead to an offline fight. So you see this escalation that happens. Um, it might even be something that started offline or maybe even just an errant comment uh, on online. But the escalation often involves other people. It's not really about, you know, the severity of the initial point of conflict. The initial conflict is often not over something very serious. And the young people told us this again and again. It would be like, you know, it would be something like a ha-ha um, emoji in response to some, some kind of someone posts online, oh, I was really mad today. And someone posts in response, ha ha. Um, or just like a, like a, a small conflict um, over someone's outfit that day at school. And it doesn't, there's not an intention to fight in these initial experiences. But then when uh, people participate in the comments and say, oh, she just disrespected you or, um, oh my goodness, I can't believe she said that about you. What are you gonna do? You need to fight. Um, that is when the experience, that initial small conflict starts to become more serious. And so that's, that's a big way that social media is really different. If you have a conflict with someone in the hall, school hallway or in front of your house, you're not likely to have, you know, potentially 1500 people watching. And, and the, the teenagers we spoke with were very aware of that audience. They would even describe, oh, I saw 134 comments on this, con this conflict. It's going to become a fight offline. Um, or they'd say, oh, she had, you know, 4,000 followers watching this conflict. 
is, is going to really go down. So they were very aware of the number of, of um, people watching. So, you know, I just observed uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, a, a sort of conflict between adults um, that took place on Twitter. And on some level, I was reminded of your, your study. I mean, it, it started with, um, you know, one person commenting on another person's tweet. And that comment you know, it was, it was, it could have been read the wrong way. It was, it was definitely kind of implicitly critical, but it wasn't that big a deal. Um, but then some other people saw it and thought, oh, oof, you know, can't believe that person said that in quite the way they did. You know, what are they trying to insinuate? What's going on here? Uh, and the next thing you know, uh, before the original participants in the conflict had even really had a chance to uh, say anything else at all. Uh, it had kind of, you know, snowballed and various people were um, unraveling the thread and arguing about what they believed to be the underlying uh, conflict, even if, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, it went on for days. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is this just is it just teens that we're seeing this sort of stuff with? I mean, obviously, your study focused on them. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, Justin, because I, I really, I think this type of conflict is happening across different types of populations. You know, we've seen it abroad and inciting political violence. We've seen it within our own um, home uh, territory with the violence on the Capitol. And I think it does happen across populations. I mean, conflict online is some people, you know, it might be cyberbullying or kind of, you know, a dating conflict. Um, I think that what's different about the population that I work with is not that they are more likely to get into conflict. The, the group of young people I worked with were mostly Black and Latino youth. They are not more likely to get into conflict, but what's different is they live in neighborhoods that have been disinvested and have high rates of firearm violence, have, have high rates of access to guns. And so what, what is especially troubling in these situations is for a young person who, you know, like any any young person is very sensitive to their peers' um, opinions about them, and maybe doesn't isn't fully um, doesn't have the adult capacity of self-regulation. It's even hard for us adults, <laughs> but um, that part of their brain isn't fully developed. The, and if they have access to firearm um, uh, firearms, then you know, a small conflict can lead to a shooting or to some really serious violence. So I think that is what is different. Um, it's not the conflict. I think the conflict, like you said, is social media is changing how all of us experience conflict online. So you uh, really looked at four separate feature sets on social media that you feel like kind of drive the, the snowball effect of potentially violence. Um, let's talk about those just a bit. First was, you know, just likes and comments, the most basic form of social media interaction. Um, how did comments specifically play a role? Comments were the most frequently mentioned uh, feature that, that heated up conflict. Um, and so the way that we saw it play out is someone might, again, uh, uh, an initial conflict, and it almost didn't matter what the initial conflict was about, um, something, a comment about someone's clothes, teasing someone. But then in the comments, it was both the quantity of comments that would heat up the, con the, the conflict. So a young person might say, oh my goodness, 134 people have commented on this conflict. 
is going to become a fight. They were aware, they were watching those, you know, those numbers. And there's actually research in other fields that have shown that that there's like a, a, a response in our brains when we see higher number of likes that it's like, um, we're very tuned into it. There's like an adrenaline hit. Um, and then also there's a particular form of comment that really seemed to heat up that might be a little bit more particular to this group of young people. Um, and that was dropping an address. Two young, there was scenarios where they describe two young people having a conflict and it starts to get a little bit more serious. And one of them would drop an address, which um, is dropping a pin to their location. And the other person, that's really a very public, because people are, are watching um, in, in the comments, um, it's a public basically saying, hey, like, are you, you going to be able to walk the walk? Um, and, um, and we heard multiple incidents of a young, per young people actually meeting up in real time in, in offline. Um, so the dropped address was, was a real um, kind of, uh, it almost always seemed to, when someone dropped their address, it would lead to an offline fight. And, and, you know, some of the situations, again, where the, I think this theme of like, they're not often intending to fight, uh, it just kind of happens almost. Uh, one young woman described the experience of she dropped her address. And then, you know, she'd been having this conflict on social media. And then 20 minutes later, a girl drives up in front of her house. And they both just stare at each other, because they weren't they were like, Oh, my God, is this really happening? And and the other girl says, you, you punch, no, you punch, no, you punch. And then finally, they're like, okay, we, we have to do this. Because the other thing we heard is that if you don't, the fight is often, often documented and then reposted on social media. So people know if you didn't follow through. But I think it's, it's a really powerful example of, you know, that the intention isn't there necessarily to, at the start, it's not the intention to fight, but then, you know, once it escalates, you That's have to it. follow through. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like being challenged to a duel or something. That's yeah. it. That actually, that was yeah. going through my mind. Yes. Uh-huh. So one of the things uh, as well, you know, you mentioned also um, uh, images and photos uh, as being another kind of key thing. And you just talked a little bit about the documentation of the conflict. Yeah. Uh, but, but the other one that I was really struck by was, was live streaming and the kind of um, use of live streaming, especially in those moments um, and how, you know, once that pin got dropped that people, you know, who are on these threads and they're in close geographical proximity, Others might show up and, you know, tune in and try to essentially broadcast it. Yeah. Live streaming. I'm glad you mentioned that feature, even though it wasn't the most commonly mentioned, it seemed like an, a particularly intense feature. Um, what might happen? And and the young people, again, were very aware that using live stream would, one, one young person described it as turning up the volume on Facebook. So she was angry at someone, she'd start live streaming on her feed and say, and start in, you know, in real time video broadcasting on her Facebook feed, um, her insults and her anger at someone. And then the other person starts live streaming. And then when we saw a lot of these features used together, of course, that none of these features exist in isolation. So from a live stream, we, we heard an example of a young person dropping the address, the person arrives. And then just like you said, um, in this one example, um, 
three Facebook friends arrive at the house where the house had been dropped that are not involved in the conflict, but want to live stream on their Facebook feeds uh, the, con- the fight that's going to happen. And you can only imagine the pressure that that would, you know, how that would be taken in for a young person to say like, you know, are you going to be able to back out of a fight at that point? You know, no. <laughs> and so to some extent, um, everybody's chasing likes uh, everybody's chasing clout. Everybody's chasing, well, I mean, really broadcast ratings on some level. Yeah. And I think that gets into um, just the, the the way that social media is designed. Um, you know, like fil- recent films like The Social Dilemma are, are really underscoring that these platforms, there's not necessarily an intention for these uh, negative consequences, but when you're trying to maximize, you're, get, you're using, hijacking people's brains to get them to seek more likes, to seek more views, it uh, really kind of any cost. Um, and so it incentivizes certain behaviors that may not be intended in this case, fighting. So one of the things that's kind of hot in the debate about social media and its role in society is whether social media is, you know, like holding up a mirror to communities and whether, you know, it's just showing us the, the kind of conflicts or the polarization that's already there. Um, or whether there's something peculiar about social media sites themselves that's actually driving that conflict. Yeah, that's a really, it's a tricky thing to prove because human behavior is so complex, right? And especially as you get into um, the environment of social media, there's there's a lot of different things happening. I really, through the young people, what the young people described is very much a transformed experience of conflict on social media. It is not just putting up a mirror to to fights that were happening um, in their schools or you know on their on their block. It really changed the nature. It intensified the demands to respond. It um, altered the nature of their peer experience. Um, and, you know, there's not cues to really pick up on if someone's really joking or not. But I think particularly what we saw was was just the public nature of um, these conflicts created immense pressure for the young people to follow through and actually fight. Um, And they were very aware of that. So, you know, I, I do think, you know, this is not the type of data that can be used to make a causal argument. We um, uh, were not collecting large scale quantitative data, but these stories again and again, what, what the young people were sharing with us is that it was really a different type of experience online. And many of them actually shared that they had stopped going online because they knew that it was a toxic space that led to violence, that they had just kind of, and they didn't think that there was any kind of small amount that they could be online without, it was all or nothing. You know, if you're, if you're dipping your toe in, you're going to get sucked into these conflicts. So let me ask you uh, about your future work and how this piece of research may inform it. Um, what are you working on next and, and where do you hope this line of questioning goes? It's a great question. There's there's a couple projects that we're working on um, in collaboration with Compass Youth Collaborative, the Hartford Violence Prevention Agency. One project is that we are starting to collect some quantitative data to 
try to measure and get some preliminary evidence for exactly what we just were talking about, that um, the experience of conflict on social media is linked to offline violence and in a way that we could track you know, with a large sample. Um, so that, bec because really most of the work in this area has been qualitative, which is, is providing very powerful stories that help us understand how social media um, changes the experience of conflict, but it's not providing that causal link. So we were hoping to contribute to that to, to kind of, and, and particularly to see what types of these experiences with social media, is it particularly video streaming that seems especially strongly linked to offline violence? Or is it the fights where the comments are involved or pictures are posted? So that's one line of research. Um, and then also we're interested in developing um, uh, an intervention to basically help young people cope with the stress related to navigating social media. Um, one thing that we've heard from young people um, is that they really, often adults don't really understand that social media is like a very real part of their lives. It's not just kind of a, a little side thing that they do. And so part of taking it seriously is, is giving educators and um, violence prevention workers, parents, tools to help young people cope with the stress of managing these situations. Um, and in particular, we're uh, we're interested in using mindfulness um, as a as a way to to tap into to monitoring one's responses to to these experiences online. Um, but I will say also, you know, these are uh, the nature of my work uh, because I'm I have a clinical social work background, a teacher. I'm I'm more on the healing side and managing stress side. But I do think it's important always to come back to the root causes of these these conflicts, which, you know, I think do have to do with the design of social media. And also, of course, the, the longstanding disinvestment in these neighborhoods that create economic conditions that lead to violence. Um, so I think it's just always important to put those, those things in context. Let me ask you this. Have any of the platforms reached out to you? Or are you aware if any of them are, have read your study? I am, I, I am not aware of that. No, but I think it would be cool to be in conversation with them because I, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if they're aware of, of the way that their platform has these unintended consequences. So, you know, when uh, Desmond talks about these issues, um, he sometimes has talked about the idea that, um, you know, it might help in design decisions for technology companies if they do look at um, what they might regard as more fringe cases. Are there any kind of design tips that, that you might have for, for Facebook or for Twitter as a result of what you're doing? Yeah, I was thinking about that, Justin. I, you know, I am not, not a tech expert. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I have specific recommendations. I have, um, I guess, just the first thing that comes to mind is it's simple, but I do think it's, um, it's important that this is related because these behaviors are he escalated, we're seeing from the evidence because of the platform, the platform does have some responsibility 
to to pay attention and 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 change you know make changes based on that so i think just at a basic level it is within the domain of um, tech companies to pay attention to this and and bear responsibility and i think there's you know conversations happening across spectrums right now about um just the need for regulation with um social media companies and and um for for behaviors that's happening online um, and then I guess just the only other thing I'd say is that it's really tricky, I think, in situations like this, because from the preliminary evidence, the qualitative evidence we have, it does seem like these types of experiences are actually very common. They're not among a certain population. These are young people who are um, who are living in disinvested urban neighborhoods that, um, you know, might be at risk for violence. It's it actually this conflict online that leads to offline fights is actually I think pretty common, but it's not kind of the it's going to be difficult to track if if you're looking at it's not going to be they're very they're reflective of real micro environments. It's not something like you know the Capitol pr- protests or. QAnon, where you see like these huge massive followers kind of building and building and you might be able to track that. And so to figure out how to to monitor um, or to change the platform experience, I think it's going to be tricky. And we always have to be really aware and acknowledge the history of monitoring black and brown youth and using technology actually to as an excuse to to um, to penalize them disproportionately. So that I'm very worried about that. That would be absolutely the wrong implication out of this work. So that was kind of a non-answer, but just some considerations I, I think about when, um, you know, just framing how social media companies need to respond. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, Justin. It was a lot of fun. Next up, Jeff Kosseff, author of the book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, A History of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, helps us tease out some of the dominant arguments about Section 230. I presented Jeff arguments from two groups of people, 10 and 11-year-olds at a recent debate competition my son participated in that included a proposition around Section 230, and some statements by three United States senators. I'll leave it to you to decide who presents the more cogent arguments. Here's Jeff. Sure, I'm Jeff Kossoff, and I am a professor at the Naval Academy, where I teach cybersecurity law. And uh, one of my big uh, focuses in my research has been uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So my book is called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. And what the book is about is the hit, why we have Section 230 on the books, um, why it was passed, the impact that it has had on basically fostering the creation of a commercial internet that relies uh, very heavily not on content that companies create, but on content that their users create. So everything from Facebook to YouTube to Yelp to Wikipedia um, are very much focused on uh, user content. And uh, in part because Section 230 really protects the platforms from having to assume legal responsibility for most of that content. 
and Section 230 is about to enjoy a birthday. Is that right? It is. On uh, February 8th, Section 230, which is part of the much larger Telecommunications Act of 1996, will be 25 years old. Excellent. So this is a good opportunity to think a little bit about the discourse around Section 230, which is, you know, fairly, I guess, to say reached a fevered pitch in the last uh, few months, and particularly as we've kind of gone through, uh, you know, polarizing season of politics in the United States. And uh, Section 230 has kind of been at the heart of, of, of some of the arguments. Absolutely. And um in many cases, it really should not be uh, because there's a lot of uh, assumptions about everything being wrong with the Internet uh, being a Section 230 issue. And in some cases, it's true, but in many cases, it's not. So I'm going to play you some clips that are from a debate that I recently listened to on Section 230. Not your typical debate. It was amongst 10 and 11-year-olds, and my son is one of them. I'm not going to identify any of the kids or the, the schools uh, they went to, um, so we'll kind of preserve their anonymity here. Uh, but you'll be able to hear their voices and how they kind of understand Section 230 and the arguments for and against uh, repealing it, essentially. Um, and there there are moves afoot to do just that. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we're going um, to listen to the first one. Let's see if this comes through. We should repeal this law for a couple of different reasons. The first is that if we don't repeal this, then many people could get hurt emotionally and mentally due to people saying harsh or rude things, or they can spread lies and disinformation and incite violence that can lead to such actions as Dermila Capital in Washington, D.C., which can lead to the five people that died in Washington, and nobody would do anything about it. Then, overall, can lead to depression. The second is that people can say rude things, and repealing Section 230 will help people be more appropriate and not to not, and to not say hateful things to each other. Third off is that Section 230 allows companies such as YouTube or Facebook to be unresponsible for what their users say, which can lead to rudeness and a lot of cruelty. In conclusion, you can say that Section 230 needs to be repealed, and if we don't, bad things will happen. So what do we think? This is an argument more that somehow Section 230 has engineered more uh, more hate or more more uh, negative behavior into uh, people's people's engagement with one another. What do you make of that? Well, so I think there's it's hard to empirically prove that because you, you have to kind of uh, de demonstrate what the world would look like in particular on the internet without Section 230. And we don't, we, I mean, we in the United States have for the entire modern internet have had 230. Now, I, I, what, what I would say is that this gets back to the First Amendment issue. So we're talking about rudeness and there's a lot of rude speech that is protected by the First Amendment. So if you got rid of Section 230, that the government still cannot pass a law saying we don't want rude speech um, because that's still First Amendment protected. You, uh, I mean, if it is defamatory, something like that, then then we have laws on the books and it could be liability. But I, I, I think I think it really it really depends on exactly what speech you're looking for now. Um, one thing you'd have to look at, for for example, what happened on January 6th at the Capitol 
is would the uh, platform have faced li- could the platform without Section 230, any of the major social media platforms, could they face liability for what happened if it was not for Section 230? And uh, like could they face a negligence lawsuit? And I think I think it still would be even without 230, it would still be an uphill battle. So that's why I, I, I think that, uh, unfortunately, uh, the internet is too often a reflection of who we are as a society. And that's an argument that we, we hear often from, from social media executives, the, you know, polarization and, and the problems that we're seeing, um, are not born on the platforms, but are, uh, a reflection of, of what's happening outside of them. Yes, exactly. I'm going to play you the next one. Let's see what comes out. But that means that if we repeal this bill, then people's content can get taken down for no reason. And I find it that if we intend to sue or their or the person or their content gets taken down, right, it is going to be more of a valuable lesson to them. But instead, if we sue the company, as the app side says, then that company would kind of just get drag down and less people would use it, meaning that there would be less funding and less platforms in order for us to speak our mind. So this is an argument you hear occasionally, which is, uh, you know, if uh, the social media companies have more liability, that it will negatively impact their ability to, to service their platforms um, and may require them to uh, expend so much resources that it would be debilitating. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think that if you were to get rid of Section 230 tomorrow, I think um, Facebook and Google and Twitter, I think they would all survive because they're big enough to adapt to whatever the legal standard becomes without Section 230. Uh, it would be much more restrictive overall, uh, but they would survive. But I think this, there, what, one thing that gets lost in the debate is that Google and Facebook and Twitter are not the only platforms. Um, any company that has a website that posts third-party content relies on Section 230. And for those, for the smaller companies, like a, a new, maybe a 50-employee startup that has a new viral app uh, that relies on user content, they're not, they very well could get bogged down in uh, liability if they have a lot of users, but they still aren't quite at the revenue point where they have enough revenue to, have a large moderation staff, they're the ones that I think would uh, suffer quite a bit. And that's why I think that getting rid of Section 230 altogether would would even further reduce competition in a market that I think is in desperate need of more competition. We'll play the next one. I disagree with liberal content and socialists and communists, but I believe in free speech. It is only one side that is demanding of big tech that they censor the views they disagree with. This legislation is an important step because 230 has served, the purpose it served when these were nascent companies has long since passed. These are the most powerful companies on the face of the earth and they feel zero accountability to any elected official. For all of us who care about free speech, that should worry us greatly. YouTube's latest policy is ridiculous. And by the way, if they disagree with someone saying there's widespread election fraud, 
there's a mechanism for that, which is they can share their own views. You can counter it. You can say, I think this is all baloney. That's fine. That's called free speech. But simply exercising monopoly power to say the views that I don't like shall disappear and have never exist, that should scare everyone. What do you think, Jeff? How does this uh, particular argument typify what you hear around Section 230? It typifies what I've been hearing recently about Section 230, but ultimately it's not a Section 230 issue. It's a First Amendment issue. So um, I I have a six-year-old daughter, and when she was in preschool, her um, teacher would always say to the kids who were having various meltdowns, uh, is this a big problem or is this a little problem? And I've kind of modified that in the Section 230 debate, and I say, is this a Section 230 problem or is this a First Amendment problem? And what was just being described is a First Amendment problem because uh, the platforms are private companies and they have every right under the First Amendment to exclude or include whatever speech they want to. Um, even if Section 230 did not exist, the platform would be able to choose, you know, we, we just don't like this particular point of view for whatever reason they want. Now, whether that's concerning is a separate story. Uh, I, I, I think, of course, it's concerning when you have a few very large companies that can effectively be the gatekeepers for speech. Um, but the problem here is that we, under our current First Amendment doctrine, we don't have very many legal avenues to do that. And moreover, if we were to get rid of Section 230, I, I would almost certainly predict you would see more aggressive moderation because the platforms now suddenly would face a lot more potential liability for content that's right on the edge of possibly being defamatory or illegal. So is this part of it really that just people don't uh, tend to understand that, uh, you know, despite what it might seem that these are public squares, that in fact they're not? Yeah, exactly. It, it's um, there, There's this idea that somehow... Uh, these uh, social media platforms, because they play such an important role in public discourse, which they do, that they are somehow just as bound by uh, requirement, the First Amendment uh, public forum requirements as the government. The problem with that is that we've got a whole lot of court cases that say that's not the case. Um, and we, we don't have, uh, we, we have all the way up to the recently, uh, U.S. Supreme Court case by, uh, Justice Kavanaugh saying that a cable access TV station that was even specifically required by a state, by a, by state law, that they're not subject to the First Amendment requirements for, um, for providing a public forum. And if they are, and they're, again, they're really intertwined with the government, then certainly a social media company isn't. And that's as much as what, what uh, other courts have said. So I'm going to play you another clip, and this comes from uh, one of our young debaters. Okay. I noticed that you said that we want free speech in what we say, and I agree that we would like to have free speech. We should all be able to speak our minds. But in some cases, some people take advantage of the fact that we get to have all this free speech and they use it to harm people to give to spread negative 
words like derogatory or hate speech. So I, my question to you is, why should we not repeal the bill if people are threatening people due to this? So Jeff, do you hear this? Do you hear this concern? Uh, it, typically, this is the kind of thing that um, folks point to when they when they talk about Section Two Hundred and Thirty and the reduction of liability is is the actual harm. Yeah, so that that's a legitimate concern, um, but that again gets to the question of is this a Section Two Hundred and Thirty problem or a First Amendment problem? And so it really depends on what what particular type of speech that you're talking about. So. If it is speech that is fully protected by the First Amendment, the the problem is that uh, changing Section 230 still will not enable the government to prohibit it. So um, the classic example is hate speech. Um, I, I don't like the fact that we have a lot of hate speech on the Internet. I think a lot of people do not like that. But in the United States, unlike other countries, of hate speech is constitutionally protected. Now, uh, sort of what, one of the benefits of Section 230 is that it provides the platforms with the flexibility to adopt additional rules that the government could not adopt to combat things like hate speech, and many of them do. Now, do they do it perfectly? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, they, they, there have been some major failures, but the key benefit of the system under 230 is that uh, it gives the platforms the flexibility to address the speech that some people call lawful but awful, uh, speech that the government cannot just go out and prohibit. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm very concerned about hate speech, about misinformation, and I mean, there's certain things that can be legally prohibited uh, if it meets the the bar defamatory, but that's a very high bar. Um, the, the bottom line really for both sides is that, um, the courts over the past century have very expansively interpreted the First Amendment. So, um, it's very difficult to deal with all the speech problems, whether having too much harmful content or too much moderation, because we have this very expansive view of the First Amendment. Your claim where it says YouTube and Twitter should be should be at fault for this is I I just disagree. And well, the reason that they should be at fault for this one, they're the they're the people who made that website, which means that they're the people who gave other people access to saying those things. And also, I know that you keep you keep on saying that they can't look at it until they post it. I know. And once they once the people who posted it. The, then the company like Twitter can take it down, and or if they're posting many continuous things, they can just ban people's account. Um, that's the same with YouTube. So this is kind of a common uh, argument that there's something lost in the pace at which content is posted um, that you know reduces the kind of public's understanding of what type of effort that the platforms should be taking to monitor hate speech. I and mean, we've talked about the idea that um, lots of things slip through the, the moderation cracks. Is, is that something we should be looking at? Is, is introducing more friction to how quickly things get posted? Um, I, I mean, I think that's a value judgment uh, that I don't know if we would have much agreement on. Uh, I, I think especially in America, uh, Americans are impatient folks. And, 
I think that if we were to have a pre-screening requirement for all user content, I think that would um, not go over terribly well. But again, I mean, that, that comes down to a value judgment that we end up wanting to make of, I mean, the, the, the internet that we have that Section 330 helped create is an incredibly open one. Um, so do we want to change it to one where it's more like uh, an online letters to the editor page. Um, I, I, I think that would be uh, a pretty radical change from what we have now. And I would say also, uh, I, I'm not sure if you saw, read the Facebook oversight board decisions that just came out, but uh, I think one thing they show, and I know there's a lot of debate about whether the oversight board should exist, and I'm not going to get into that. But when you actually look at the facts of the case and the reasoning, because for four of the five cases, the oversight board overturned Facebook's decision. Um, we, I actually, am, I teach a free speech seminar and we spent yesterday's class uh, discussing and debating them, these decisions. And I, I will say there was not any agreement on any of these decisions and two of them involved hate speech, violating Facebook's hate speech policies. Um, and what that shows is that while there are some content moderation decisions that are really easy calls, so something like really excessive violence or child sex abuse material, which clearly has to be taken down and reported, things like hate speech, there's not, there's oftentimes when you look at it and it's like, well, I don't think it really is hate speech or I do think it is and two very reasonable people. I mean, my, my students are very smart. Uh, they think they, they think things through really well. But they, I mean, they came to very different conclusions about every single one of these cases. Um, so I don't think that it's as easy as saying, even if you were to just step back and review it, that there would be any, uh, that, that, that there would be any consensus as to what to do. I mean, the bottom line is content moderation involves really tough choices. So this next one, I think, uh, uh, kind of uh, gets to a little bit of the question about resources for content moderation. The reason why I oppose this bill is because, like, the social media creators themselves don't control what people post. And that, like, since the creators don't control what's being posted, people can post whatever they want until someone reports it. So it's basically the people on the absolute job to report anything disrespectful or inappropriate so the creators can take it down. And according to The Verge, which is like a website, in other words, apps, websites, and other interactive computer services aren't, in most cases, legally responsible for what YouTube posts. It is true that the creators don't control what they post. And I personally agree to this because the creators made the apps so that way people can share their creativity in different ways. And to have like fun and stuff. Okay, so there's that point of view that, um, you know, again, it's not the fault of the social media companies, the platforms, what's posted, um, and it's, it, but it's their job to sort of take it down. And let's listen to one more. If social media face the same consequences as newspapers, television stations, and radio stations, then they would have liabilities which would incentivize them not to allow lies to be spread. As it stands now, social media is set up to reward people who can attract the most followers, even if they hurt society by posting hurtful or inappropriate videos and content. These incentives must change in order to change inappropriate behavior. I think that the social media platforms should be held responsible for spreading lies and endanger people, just like any other media outlet. 
Social media companies make billions of dollars a year and can easily hire people or make programs to monitor this abuse. Therefore, Section 230 must be repealed. So this is the argument uh, you often hear, the kind of platform publisher argument. Um, and where are we at on the platform publisher argument in 2021? Well, so there's not really a platform. I mean, the, the, the entire point, and then Section 230 doesn't even use the word platform, but it says if you're an interactive computer service provider or user, you're not treated as the publisher or speaker of content that someone else provides. Now, uh, I mean, th this reflects, and, and I mean, I... I got from the comment of saying, you know, what about newspapers and TV stations? They have to be, uh, they're held responsible for, um, any speech that they, uh, transmit, uh, which is true over in the print edition and on the broadcast. But obviously if they have a website that has user comments, that's not the case. But if you're sticking with the print and broadcast comparison, I think that's true. I mean, section 230, reflects this idea of internet exceptionalism, uh, that the internet is inherently a different medium and needs to have different rules. So, I mean, you, a, a newspaper can be held liable for its print letters to the editor page um, because it might have maybe 10 letters to the editor. So there's an idea that they take at least some steps to verify the accuracy of what they're printing. Um, internet exceptionalism would say that that's simply not going to be possible if you're creating a platform where hundreds or thousands or millions or billions of people can come on and type whatever they want. And so, so I mean, I, I think that, uh, that, that's really what section 230 reflects is this idea that the internet is just currently different than these previous media. Great, because I've got two more for you, Jeff. Sure. For me, this was always a fight about creating opportunity for the little guy. And I will tell you that was the fight when Congressman Cox and I authored the bill, one Republican, one Democrat. It's still the fight. I'll give you an example. Uh, you may have seen a lot of social justice groups just in the last few days, put out an open letter saying you ought to be careful about what you do with 230. I'll give you a real example. A lot of very knowledgeable lawyers have come to us and said they don't think that the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter would have been able to get so much traction online without something along the lines of 230, some measure of protection, some ability to, you know, to moderate. And, you know, Trump and some of the far right people say, oh, big win for big tech. I think if you take a look at the record, nobody has been tougher on the big tech people than me. So this is Senator Wyden, of course, making uh, an argument um, that we've heard in a couple of different threads uh, earlier in, in the discussion. One that, um, you know, Section 230 is the friend to the little guy um, in more than one way, a, a friend to entrepreneurs, but also a friend to um, you know, social entrepreneurs, um, people who may be leading movements that are outside of the mainstream. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, th that's been one of the real benefits of Section 230 is that the, the, it, 
you, you think about, uh, again, going, going into the consumer context, if before the internet, if you had been ripped off by a mechanic, um, your recourse, if you wanted to publicize it, was to convince the one local consumer reporter on the TV news or reporter, if there was one at the newspaper who covered consumer issues. And uh, you usually were going to be out of luck. You were pretty powerless. Um, what section, what, what the internet under section 230 has allowed are sites like Yelp or some more controversial sites like Ripoff Report, where people can go and tell the world about the about businesses that they feel have wronged them. Um, so the internet absolutely empowers the, the little guy um, in ways that uh, just did not exist under the previous power structure. Yeah, I've got one more voice for you, um, and this is... Uh... Uh, not from one of our student debaters, but from another uh, another participant in our in the in the debate at the Senate level. The way I see it, this legislation is really simple. It's really simple. It says that if you want, if these tech companies want the broad blanket protections of Section 230, and make no mistake, Section 230 is how these companies have gotten big. It's how they've gotten powerful. It's how they've gotten rich. They've done it with this special immunity that the federal government has given them. So if they want that then they're going to have to actually do something for it. They're going to actually have to take some steps to protect our children online. So people like Nicole, parents like Nicole, I say this as a father myself of two small boys, don't have to go through what your family went through. They're going to have to actually, as the title says, earn it. And you know, it's interesting to watch these tech companies and their fleets of lobbyists in this building and their many dark money groups out there scream that the sky is falling and the internet is going to break. We heard all these same arguments with SESTA-FOSTA. All the same. In fact, it's, it's almost sometimes the lines are repeated verbatim. You can just read the same script over and over. Last time I looked, the internet was still working, even after SESTA-FOSTA. And in fact, it's a better place now that we have taken on human trafficking online. So what do we think of, of Senator Hawley, who uh, probably presented, you know, the most, uh, I guess, um, visible uh, affront to Section 230 in, in recent months? Well, so I'd say a few things. First, uh, federal criminal law has never been subject to Section 230. There's always been an explicit exception for the enforcement of federal criminal law. Um, so to the extent that there's any uh, violations of uh, um, uh, of any particular uh, exploitation or any federal criminal law, that's not covered. Uh, second, I, and I'm saying this as someone in 2017 who testified in the House in support of an amendment, Section 230, a narrow, tailored amendment to go after sites that intentionally facilitate, facilitate sex trafficking. Uh, what ended, and so that's what ended up becoming SESTA-FOSTA. Um, the cobbled together version, uh, is not what I had in mind and it, is both far too sweeping and also far too ineffective at getting the actual bad actors. Um, the internet did not collapse, but what did happen is that uh, a number of venues ended up shutting down because of the potential liability. And this included, uh, for example, Craigslist personal items because they said, you know, we just can't take the additional risk of uh, our site possibly leading to all this liability. So um, the world can survive without the Craigslist personal ads. But if you look at if, if you, but what I think that shows is that um, 
platforms are risk averse and they will react very quickly to changes to Section 230. That happened right after uh, Foster was passed. Uh, and the third thing is that um, the the issue that they particularly wanted to address was sex trafficking on Backpage because Backpage had been immune under a civil lawsuit. Um, Backpage ended up getting shut down by the FBI a few days before Foster was signed into law because of the federal criminal exception. So what that ultimately showed was that it wasn't even necessary to amend Section 230 uh, to address the harm because there already was a tool. It just took a long time to use it. So um, that's why, and I mean, I think the Earn It Act, which was being discussed there, I think there's, and it's been amended a few times, I'm not sure what debate that was actually from, but at least in an earlier version, there were some real concerns that that was going to uh, somehow require uh, backdoors to encrypted communication, which I think is a whole other <laughs> issue that we could talk about. But uh, so, so I, I, I think, I mean, the bottom line is that all of these issues are, there's not never a simple solution to this because there's a lot of things that are intertwined. So Jeff, you might not be surprised to learn that in the debate amongst the 10 and 11 year olds, uh, the debate, they had a vote at the end to decide whether they were going to uh, accept the bill to repeal and and you know modify Section 230. The vote came out in a tie, so it was essentially a neutral uh, decision <laughs> amongst uh, the participants in that debate. You know, thinking back over the last 25 years, I mean, there's been so much argument about this, and yet no movement really. Um, do you do you feel like we're we're stuck on this one? Uh, and is that for a reason? Is that because you know Section 230 is in fact uh, the kind of best we got? Well, so I think that fundamentally there are very different visions as to how the internet, how we want the internet to look. So there are some people who think that there should be little to no moderation at all, that the internet should basically be a place where people post whatever they want and it's left up to the viewers or readers to decide what, what to consume. Uh, there are, there are a lot of other people who think that there's far too much harmful content and the platforms need to be much more hands on and aggressive with their moderation. Um, so those are very different visions. So I mean, my ultimate, uh, concern is that we have not even identified the problem that we want to solve. Uh, we've identified a number of different problems, but we don't have a consensus as to what the problem is. So it's hard to figure out a solution when you're still debating the problem. Do you have a sense of what the problem definition should look like? I think, I mean, from my per my perspective, at least, I think the problem is more still that there's too much harmful content. Uh, I don't think the internet would be usable in a totally unmoderated state. And I think what we saw on January 6th was that uh, the platforms still need to do a better job of moderating but there are other routes to yeah force them or compel them or incentivize them to do that yeah i mean i i think ultimately the plat the the platforms are trying to i mean most of the platforms don't want this to be happening it's just they face a lot of different public pressure so i mean i think what we saw twitter and facebook do suspending some very high profile accounts after january 6th um, that was their attempt, but 
I mean, you have to look again at the pushback that they faced because they made those moves. Um, it, they're, they're in a very politically difficult situation right now. Uh, and that ultimately comes back to the problem of these very different visions of the Internet. So I guess uh, this is the, the silver anniversary of, of Section 230, um, if it's at 25 years. Do you think we'll we'll be able to have you back on for a conversation at the the gold anniversary for 50 years on? You know, I, I don't know if, uh, I, I mean, I, I still think there's a decent chance it gets repealed within a year or two, uh, just because everyone kind of gets fed up with the debate and they just all decide, well, let's repeal it and see what happens. Uh, I think it'll look very different. I think, I think that even in the next five years, if it stays on the books, it's going to be a very, it's going to probably be much longer have a lot more caveats. Unfortunately, I think it'll probably be uh, just have a lot of what both sides want, and it's not going to be not going to really address any of the concerns. But who, who knows? I mean, I I very well could be proven wrong. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's Sunday show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You could write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, Jeff Kosef and Caitlin Elsesser. And I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Tech Policy Press.